Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Camp Randall. Big Ten football fans know it as the name of the University of Wisconsin's football stadium. But it's also a camp itself where Wisconsin regiments were organized and trained for the Civil War and where Confederate soldiers from Alabama and other states were held prisoners and where 140 of those men died. It's also near the site of where those Confederate prisoners' bodies still lie today. Who were those men? How did they get there? What were they fighting for? What did they have in common with the Union soldiers who trained on the same ground? And how should they be remembered? These are just some of the questions addressed in a new book, The Captured, the Sick, and the Dead, Confederate Soldiers at Camp Randall. We'll talk with the author, Lawrence Donald Desotel, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters in the pandemic annex location here on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University which is my employer, but and not speaking for my employer or for anybody, not for ECU, uh, just myself. And likewise, my guest will, as always, speak only for himself. It is the last day of March 2021, so we're still broadcasting from home. It's still a pandemic year. Uh, this boomer got the vax, to quote Saturday Night Live from the past week. I'm happy to say I got my second shot this past week. Didn't have any bad reaction. Hope you're getting yours soon. And we can all join each other out touring Civil War battlefields this summer. That's the hope. Um, that was the good news yesterday. It started out yesterday, I must say, as a bad sports day around here. 
East Carolina basketball is a bottom-dwelling program with one really, really good player. He's probably the best player in the the conference. And yesterday he announced he was transferring for his senior season, so that was disappointing. ECU football is on the way up. They've had a great spring practice so far, but then yesterday they had to pause all football activities for COVID, lose all their momentum. Uh, At least uh, on the bright side, uh, last night my number one seeded Michigan Wolverines had a late game against low-seeded UCLA in the big in the, uh, the the March Madness basketball tournament. I didn't stay up to watch a game. I'm sure it went well. Let me just check the score. Uh, okay, never mind. Um, let's return to history. That's what we're here for. Uh, this morning, I attended a meeting online, of course, one of the committees I'm on here at ECU that deals with historic building names are committee's job, our assignment was to spell out some standards for the Board of Trustees to use when considering renaming. Uh, So we had a group of of staff and faculty and students all represented. We wrote a draft that proposes uh, what I thought was a balanced and nuanced look at names, tries to look at them in historical context, weigh the positive and negative factors of the individuals, uh, the impact of of their names, depending who and what they were. We copied or or drew upon the work of dozens of other campuses. We looked at how they had done this. And then we sent out a survey with our our draft standards to the campus. We got hundreds of responses. Most people either somewhat agreed or strongly agreed with with each of the different elements of the draft. So that was good. Uh, But most of those who left comments specifically were opposed. What was interesting was that the opposed comments were mostly from people who didn't want any names changed at all, but a large minority were from people who thought the standards left too many loopholes and would allow too many names to go unchanged. So, in other words, the majority of people who responded uh, agreed with a careful, balanced approach, but the most vocal responders who wrote comments were the ones who either wanted it all one way, no changes, or all the other way, get rid of every questionable name. It was sort of a microcosm of the country, uh, it seemed to me. And and hopefully that middle section uh, who want to take a look at things carefully, uh, not go all one way or all the other, uh, hopefully that will will hold sway in the long run. Uh, Speaking of numbers, Civil War talk radio numbers are returning to normal. Uh, Before the pandemic, anywhere from 40 to 60,000 people would click on some show at least during a given month. Uh, last summer, that shot up as high as 180,000 in one month. It was it was freakish, uh, as if everybody was staying home listening to podcasts. They had nothing else to do, and apparently, a lot of people saw the title. Hey, talk radio! You know, that means the guy's going to rant to my enemies and take phone calls from sycophants. Uh, turned out, that's not what we do here. And, uh, and and we talk for a whole hour, and people have short attention spans. So we didn't keep all those 180,000 listeners. We're back. It, the numbers fell way back down, and then now they're back where they were before. So for all of you who are listening now, welcome. Uh, uh, glad you're here. Hope you will continue listening. You can find out what to listen to next on the show, as always, from the website www.impedimentsofwar.org, where Mark Gaffney tells us who's coming up next. And Mark also updates a Facebook page with the same name, impedimentsofwar.org.
well, just Impediments of War is the name of the Facebook page. You can buy books you see advertised uh, you, that you hear about on the show. You can buy them by clicking on the Amazon links that are on the webpage, and you can also donate to the show. Always welcome when you can do that. And you can see who's coming up next. And next week we've got a returning guest, uh, Bill Marvel, author of Radical Sacrifice, The Rise and Ruin of Fitz John Porter, which is a fascinating story. Looking forward to reading that. On the 14th of April, 2021, it's John Madison, A Worse Place Than Hell, How the Civil War Battle of Fredericksburg Changed a Nation. On the 21st, a book on a topic that amazes me we don't have books about already. Uh, the book is called Friendly Enemies, Soldier Fraternization Throughout the American Civil War. Lauren Thompson's the author. And on the 28th of April, James Oakes returns to the show, I think third time possibly now, uh, with his new book on Lincoln and the Constitution. And we'll enter the month of May. We'll give those quickly. Colonel Thomas... Vossler and Colonel Jeffrey McCausland have united to write a book on leadership lessons from Gettysburg for 21st century leaders. And on the 12th of May, Barbara Tomlin has a book on life in Jefferson Davis's Navy. After that, on the 19th, hopefully I won't be here. I'll be out with Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, uh, leading this hallowed ground tour of Civil War battlefields. I've, I'm vaccinated. If we can get a bus full of other people who are and still uh, keep from spreading things, we can all get back together and do that again. Check the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours website, find out what the, uh, the rules are, and sign it up and go. And, and we'll travel again this summer. Uh, I hope they're able to make that happen. Well, tonight we are talking about a remarkable new book that has... it. it, it um, it reminds me of a book that I wrote in which one reviewer said this book delivers more than it promises which I thought was a nice thing to hear uh, this one does too the title is The Captured, the Sick, and the Dead Confederate Soldiers at Camp Randall and I will confess when I first got a copy of this book I thought this looks like perhaps an antiquarian listing of all the Confederate dead at a given cemetery a filiopietistic ancestor worship book by a lost causer. That was my fear when I started looking at it. It's not that. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that much. The author is here to tell us more about it. Uh, Larry Desotel. Larry, are you there? I am. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. Well, thank you very much. It's very nice to be here with you. Well, this this book, um, as I said, it's, it's a lot more than just uh, a book recitation of the names of the dead, certainly. Uh, let me start by asking you uh, what brought you to write a book about the Civil War at all. This is not your your uh, career, uh, I, I gather, from the dust jacket. Uh, uh, you've got a different day job, but, but you're writing about the Civil War. So, so what do you do, and, and what brought you to this? Well, I'm retired now, but I, I taught uh, high school uh, in a, uh, a public school uh, west of Milwaukee in, in Waukesha County. I, I did that for 32 years, and I taught U.S. history and political science. Uh, and, um, you know, that all, I, I've been to a lot of the different battle sites with friends and, uh, and so on, so I've always had an interest in it. And uh, as I was retired, 
uh, I had the time to uh, do some research and to uh, follow through. Uh, when I first started, I, I was just going to write a two-page account for inclusion in the, um, the booklet that would be given out at the Wisconsin Council for the Social Studies uh, Convention. Uh, but once I started doing that, I went into the rabbit hole and I, I finally came up and <laughs> got published, you know. So um, it, uh, you know, it took me about four years uh, to do all the research and, uh, and to write the book and edit the book and so on. But uh, that's my connection. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm not a Ph.D. I'm not a professional historian. I, as I like to say, is kind of part of your thing. I'm just a guy uh, who wrote I, this book. It, which I, I it's one of the remarkable things about Civil War history is that the topic attracts people who aren't professionally trained historians or, or who don't make a living from doing this. And that's not true of many other elements in, in American history. Maybe Second World War, you find that. Uh, but it, it, on, on this show, I would say maybe two-thirds of the people who who have written books and are interviewed here are our uh, professors, our, our, our historians with PhDs, and maybe a third, maybe more than that, are not. Uh, and it's one of the places where we see real public history taking place, where, where it's not just uh, people from the ivory tower writing books for one another, but we get people like yourself writing books for everybody. Uh, and I will also say as the son of two high school teachers and husband of another one, I have the most enormous respect for what you did as a career, then that, that we really, really need more good high school teachers. Um, so that's good to see. So you were going to write this uh, as a two-page pamphlet. Was, it, was the fact that there is a Confederate cemetery section in Wisconsin what, what intrigued you initially about this topic? Uh, absolutely. The real decision to go to, for the full book was the uh, when I went and visited it in probably about March of 2016. And it was one of those typical uh, Wisconsin March days. It was windy. There was snow on the ground. It was cold. It was miserable. And looking at those 140 tombstones um, struck a chord. Uh, you know, made me think, uh, you know, here are these guys who come from Alabama and Tennessee and, you know, Mississippi. And here they are, uh, you know, thousands of miles away from home in a place where most Wisconsinites don't even know that it's there. Uh, so that really, again, struck a chord. And that's what made me decide that I was going to find out who these folks were. So you've, you've done that. This book, touches on a lot of different angles, but one of them is it certainly looks at, at exactly who these folks were. Um, you look particularly at two regiments, the 1st Alabama and the 1st Consolidated. Uh, I've read about the Civil War for a long time, and I had never heard of the 1st Consolidated Regiment. Uh, what were they consolidated out of? Who are these people? Uh, they were, it was, uh, it was a regiment, <coughs> excuse me, composed of, uh, Guys from Alabama, um, Tennessee, and Mississippi. Um, so that's why it was actually called the first Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi Consolidated. So you've got, uh, again, typically we have the three, uh, or, or we have state regiments, 
Right. And, 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 but here we have a, a single regiment with companies from three different states. Uh, and so they go to battle under, under that title. Um, were, is that what, uh, of these 140, if I have the number correct, 140 graves uh, in the cemetery near the site of Camp Randall, are, are they all from the 1st Alabama and the 1st Consolidated, or are there some other regiments represented? Uh, no, there's also uh, people from the, the 55th Tennessee, the 40th Tennessee, the 12th uh, Louisiana, uh, the 4th Arkansas Battalion, uh, and I, uh, I think a couple others which are not immediately coming to my, my head. But, uh, yeah, they're, they're, but the biggest three were the 1st uh, uh, Alabama, the 1st Consolidated, as I call it. Sometimes they're called the 4th Confederate uh, mm-hmm. as well. And then also the the, uh, the the 55th Tennessee. Those are the big three. And then the other ones, the, the smaller ones were basically people that were left behind at Island Number 10 when uh, the Confederate, when it was conquered, when it was taken, I guess I shouldn't say conquered, but it was taken by uh, Union forces on uh, April 8th of 1862. There are a lot of people left sick, and a lot of those guys uh, ended up in Madison. So, these the the people who are prisoners there then are are for the most part from a single campaign. Uh, what we'll do now is take a short break and come back in just a minute. And I want to ask you about that campaign, the uh, uh, the Island Number Ten or uh, New Madrid campaign. So we'll come back and talk a little bit about that, about where these soldiers were captured and what brought them to Madison. Uh, we're talking tonight with Larry Desotel. He's the author of The Captured, the Sick, and the Dead, Confederate Soldiers at Camp Randall. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Today, many doctors prescribe basic pharmaceuticals to their patients who aren't feeling well or have various aches or pains. Is this the right course of action for all patients? Definitely not. Find out about healthy, natural ways to help you feel your best by tuning in to the CBD Ed Show with host Edward Cheney. Ed will explain full-spectrum CBD, where the whole hemp plant can be used for treatment, and answer all of your questions about CBD and natural treatment in general. Listen Fridays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z 
g at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Lawrence Donald Desotel, author of The Captured, the Sick, and the Dead, Confederate Soldiers at Camp Randall. It's, uh, as the cover illustration shows, it's based on the fact that there's a cemetery uh, in uh, Wisconsin near the site of Camp Randall, a Civil War camp where uh, Confederate prisoners of war who died are buried, still there today, of course. And we talked in the first segment a little bit about how, uh, about Larry, about how you came to write this. Uh, and that ended with the question of how these soldiers came to be there. They were captured uh, in, in Pope's campaign against Island Number 10 in the Mississippi. And on this show, if, if we're doing a program that deals with Gettysburg or Shiloh, we can safely assume everybody listening is pretty familiar with those battles. But Island Number 10 is one of those things that, that I've heard about, don't know the details of. Uh, can you give us some background on the campaign? Sure. It was a uh, it was a uh, dual effort by the by the mil- by the army under Pope, as you say, and also the Navy under Admiral Andrew Foote, uh, and they were driving down the Mississippi. Uh, they had already uh, taken uh, Columbus, uh, Kentucky. Uh, prior to that, they had taken Fort Donaldson, of course, which isn't on the Mississippi. But they were driving down the Mississippi. Uh, trying to remove Confederate uh, forces on the river so that they could then end up eventually in the uh, campaign that became Shiloh and, and Corinth. Um, and the, the island itself, Island Number 10, is named because it, it was the 10th island from where the Ohio River flows into the Mississippi. Um, it's not in the same place anymore. Uh, it's gone. It's it's just not there. It's, you know, the 10th Island is somewhere else now. Uh, but the idea again was to capture the Confederate uh, forces at Madrid uh, Bend. Madrid Bend is a double loop in the Mississippi. And to think of what they were trying to do was to capture uh, three elements of Confederate forces, one at New Madrid, mm-hmm. one at Island number 10 itself, which was kind of at the gateway into that double loop, and then also at Tiptonville, Tennessee. So it was those three locations that Pope and Foote concentrated on. Uh, Pope and Foote had a lot of arguments over what the real role of Foote's uh, fleet was going to be. He wanted uh, Foote to forget about Island Number 10, to to, uh, to steam right past it to New Madrid so he could get uh, forces across the Mississippi uh, lower down at a place called Point Pleasant, which they could then cross the Mississippi and uh, attack Tiptonville and capture even more uh, Confederates than what they did. At the high point, there were 9,000 Confederates in that uh, three-pronged area, uh, but by the time uh, Island Number Ten and Tiptonville fell. There probably weren't more than four thousand. Uh, those five thousand had escaped downriver and fought in the Battle of Shiloh. Uh, so, so, that, so it wasn't really a it wasn't really a battle. It was basically the the forces at uh, at uh, Madrid Bend got flanked, and then they uh, 
and then some of them uh, were were able to get out, but the rest of them that couldn't get out were captured. But it wasn't a lot of bloodshed. I think the the uh, the union lost fifty one people in the whole campaign. So it's it, it's a it was interesting to read the account of the campaign that uh, the foot who commands the the gunboats there. You point out he his forces suffered pretty heavily at Fort Donelson uh, earlier in that year when they they went head to head with Confederate fortifications, uh, and that he was reluctant to do so again. So you describe there, there's a lot of back and forth between uh, General Pope and Admiral Foote about when are you going to get these gunboats here, and Foote just doesn't want to do it. Was he just overcautious? I believe he was overcautious. He had been wounded. Uh, his uh, son had just died in a in some kind of accident on a, uh, and I think it kind of took the took the spirit right out of him. Um, and uh, I got the feeling too. And now this is just an impression, but the feeling that he, you know, that he wasn't going to listen to John Pope. I don't think he thought Pope was his equal. Uh, and he was going to do whatever he could to protect his fleet because he kept writing, if something happens to this fleet, I'm going to have to go all the way back to Cairo, Illinois, Cairo, to, uh, you know, to get it fixed up. And that was particularly aimed at Henry Halleck, who was the commander, union commander in the overall area, because what he really wanted was to get everybody down to Corinth uh, to fight in that battle, which obviously came after Shiloh. So, Every time Foot would threaten that he's going to have to take if he if he actively engages and he has to take ships back or boats back to to Illinois, then that's going to lessen, uh, you know, or lengthen rather the time that uh, that he can get down to uh, get men down and, and supplies down to Corinth. So it, it was kind of a, I call it a dance. The three of them kind of did a dance. Um, and there's you mentioned oh. there there was a even a proposal to. Uh, circumvent the Confederate fortifications altogether and dig a canal across the bottom of one of those loops. And, and most, again, most listeners probably know about that happening at, at Vicksburg, the attempt to dig a canal to cut off the Mississippi River. But that, that was tried uh, here as well. Right. That was, they were, the, the idea was to dig a canal that would connect some swamps uh, and uh, from island number eight, which was upriver mm-hmm. from island number 10 and they began work on that pope estimated that he could get it done within like 48 hours well it took a lot longer than that <laughs> and by the time they got done the water level had dropped to such an extent that the biggest ships couldn't go through it anyway anymore so Sorry. that idea was just kind of out uh, that just one never worked uh because of the because of the slowness of doing it plus the um the fact that the water level did not cooperate so we're talking about the the uh, problems with the northern command, with with Pope and Foot not getting along, and and uh, their their arguments. But the the southern command, uh, you discuss in the book that the southern strategy got them in this fix at, at Island Number Ten in the first place. Who who's responsible for that? Uh, well, that's um, I think you got to go back to uh, uh, Leonidas Polk and. Uh, uh, and Gideon Pillow, um, who came up with this idea that they were going to uh, take over a position at Columbus, Kentucky, uh, which then allowed 
um, which basically destroyed Kentucky's uh, neutrality. And that's when, uh, you may recall, that's when the, the campaign uh, on the Tennessee began, which eventually took over Forts Henry and Donaldson. And then that movement began heading south. So they were forced out of Columbus. Uh, then they then they went to New Madrid and to Island Number Ten. Basically, as soon as uh, when Polk got to there, uh, he realized that uh, frontal assault wasn't going to work at New Madrid. So he ordered up some siege guns. The day after they got there, they, the Confederates gave up uh, their position at Madrid Bend and came over to to Island Number Ten. But my view is that it basically began with this. Uh, decision without permission from Jefferson Davis or any other uh, military official to to basically take a position at Columbus, which was neutral, and gave uh, the Union Army and and President Lincoln the excuse of of uh, of occupying uh, Kentucky as a way to gain access to Tennessee and the rest of the Mississippi. So um, it was kind of an ill-fated decision. I mean, I think it's one of those that probably isn't really ever thought much of, but uh, I think it had a lot to do with uh, the ultimate Union victory in the West, certainly. Well, I think, I think that does make sense. I tend to agree with those who argue that the West was ultimately the decisive theater, uh, and, and that certainly was a key moment in it. So the... Confederate forces that surrender or that are that, that attempt to skedaddle, as you describe, and, and are gobbled up at, at Tiptonville, uh, they include the units we talked about in the first segment, the 1st Alabama, the 1st uh, Consolidated Regiment of Alabama, Tennessee, Mississippi troops. And what happens to those prisoners once they're captured? Uh, where, where, how do they get from where they are? up to Wisconsin, or for that matter, who decides where they're going to go? Well, that's, uh, that's a, a, an interesting story, too. The, the co- uh, commissary general of the Union prison system was William Hoffman, and he in no way wanted those uh, prisoners, and any prisoners, to be sent to Wisconsin. He wanted them to basically go to Camp Douglas and uh, uh, Camp Butler, both in Illinois. Um, what, why, but, why not? Henry Halleck made the decision to send, excuse I'm sorry, I cut you off there, but um, yeah. he made the decision, did Halleck, to send the, uh, the 1,200 uh, people um, to, uh, up to uh, Madison. Up so to so why, why did Hoffman not want them to go there? And why did Halleck say, yeah, they are going there? Well, I think part of it was a bureaucratic uh, tug of war. Uh, Hoffman says, this is my, uh, you know, this is my area of operation. You know, I, I don't take orders from you, Mr. General Halleck. I, I make these decisions. And I think he didn't believe that Madison was equipped, that Camp Randall itself was equipped to take care of, of prisoners. He thought that Camp Douglas in particular was much, much more uh, ready to accept more prisoners and to deal with them. Um, but I think a lot of it was, you know, his own pride of, saying that I'm the one who makes these decisions, not someone else. So let's talk about Camp Randall. Um, it, it was not formed as a prison camp. It was formed as an actual uh, uh, Union Army uh, rendezvous camp. Okay. Well, can you tell us about what, what, how it got there? Okay, well, it, it originally started out, it was the grounds for the uh, Wisconsin Agricultural Fair hmm. uh, in Madison, 
Uh, and then uh, when the second Wisconsin uh, was started by a guy by the name of, uh, was uh, created by S. Park Kuhn, he was offered that spot as a place to train the second Wisconsin. And there's some uh, discrepancy in accounts, but some people, one account says that he then decided to name it Camp Randall after Alexander Randall, who was the governor. And another account says that it was the legislature that passed a bill to name it that. And it may be that both are true, that Park did so first, and then it was simply verified by, uh, by the state legislature. Uh, but it was a, a big grounds um, you know, uh, because because there was a fair there and lots of the units, not all, but probably 80 percent of the of the Wisconsin units that were formed ended up uh, uh, training there and then uh, leaving from there to go to wherever it was they were assigned. Now, you talk in your book about a couple Wisconsin regiments that end up uh, engaged in the campaign that we were talking about, the Island Number 10 campaign. Uh, the Eighth Wisconsin and the Fifteenth Wisconsin. What? Why did you choose those two units to bring up? Because those two were actually stationed at uh, Madrid Bend. Uh, the Fifteenth Wisconsin, which is known as the Scandinavian Brigade, because it was formed uh, by a by a gentleman named Hans Haig. Uh, to recruit uh, people who were immigrants like himself from Scandinavia uh, to serve uh, the Union cause. As it turns out, he was killed at Chickamauga uh, later on in the war. Um, but it really was heavily um, Scandinavian. In fact, uh, I, I read that out of a thousand or so members that 109 of them were named Oli. Um, so that that's kind of interesting. I guess you could, if you were somewhere with the with the group, you could just say the name Oli, and somebody would respond to you. Um, um, uh, but so that's why I picked. They were actually part of the of uh, what was called the Flotilla Brigade. They were uh, a unit that was assigned to an infantry unit that was assigned with uh, Foot's uh, Brigade, and they were actually the ones. The fifteenth was who actually went ashore at Island Number Ten and raised the Union flag and captured a few, which were then put on display uh, at, uh, at the Wisconsin Historical Society uh, from the uh, few companies of the 1st Alabama in particular. Uh, the 8th uh, Wisconsin was, was also there. They were further downriver. They were stationed at Point Pleasant, which again is just downriver from uh, uh, New Madrid. Uh, and they're, they're famous in Wisconsin military lore as being the old Abe Brigade because they uh, somehow uh, managed to acquire a, a bald eagle, which became their mascot, and they named it for President Lincoln. Uh, and it's been, once it died, it was stuffed, and it still is on display at the, at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Um, so they were known. Um, uh, they were. They were known. They're known in Wisconsin, perhaps more than than other places. But uh, that's why those two. Uh, that was the connection. I thought. You know, there were three Wisconsin units uh, that that figured heavily into this story, alongside their uh, counterparts from Alabama and Tennessee, and so on. And it, the third. What was the third of the three Wisconsin regiments then? The nineteenth. And the nineteenth became the guards. Um, they were formed at Camp Utley in Racine, Wisconsin, which is actually my hometown. Uh, they were um, 
they were the one regiment in Wisconsin that was formed under the auspices of the War Department rather than by the state itself. Uh, and because they were basically at that point the only unit ready to enter into any kind of service, they were picked to, to be the guards. And uh, what is interesting is that, um, you know, the, the prison camp was only open six weeks. The camp, you know, Camp Randall itself was all throughout the war, but it was only a prison for six weeks from April 20th of 1862 through um the end of May of 1862, uh, but they served there and um, uh, went on to end up uh, uh, in the Department of Virginia and North Carolina, and then in the, I would say, kind of, again, ill-fated Army of the James. Uh, and, you know, the irony is that they were prison guards of which 75 them, of that regiment, the 19th, were captured at the Battle of Second Fair Oaks, and were sent to Salisbury Prison in North Carolina, where 12 died. Uh, so the circle was completed. So the, the, the who shall guard the guards, they, the yes. guards will become the prisoners. So in this case, um, so you mentioned, you said six weeks. The, the Camp Randall is only used as a prisoner of war camp for six weeks. So all of the, the 140 dead who are still uh, memorialized today in Wisconsin died in that short amount of time. And you spend a good amount of time in the book discussing that. We're going to take another break and come back. Uh, I want to ask you about what happened at the camp. Uh, and also one of the most interesting angles that, that, that I found in the book was your discussion, discussion of the motivations of those Confederate soldiers. We'll come back and talk about those issues and more with our guest tonight, Larry Desotel. He's the author of The Captured, The Sick, and the Dead, Confederate Soldiers at Camp Randall, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand, all from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G 
at ecu.edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Lawrence Donald Desotel, author of The Captured, The Sick, and the Dead, Confederate Soldiers at Camp Randall. Uh, as we mentioned in the first segment, uh, Larry is a retired high school teacher, uh, wrote this book out of passionate interest in the topic. And Larry, I see it's published by Sand Beach Press. That is not a university press or other major press. Um, is this a book that listeners can get through Amazon, or where where's where does one uh, get hold of a copy of this? Well, there's there's really three options. Amazon is one. Uh, the other one is sandbeachpress.com. Um, hmm. On the, their website, you can uh, order one, and they will ship it to you. Or um, you can uh, go through me, and my email is Lawrence Desotel. Excuse me, Lawrence with a U, Donald Desotel author at gmail.com and then i would send you a book but uh, uh any of those three again sandbeachpress.com amazon and then my own uh, lawrence donald desatel author at gmail.com well i want to make sure people are aware of that it's it's uh, uh good to support people who take an interest in history uh, to this level and and tell us something that we don't otherwise already know which is certainly the case here um we were talking about the uh, the Wisconsin regiments that participated. You start the book, though, discussing in some detail the uh, the first Alabama and the first consolidated uh, regiment of, of Confederates, in conjunction with the the argument that one can still hear today uh, that the Civil War was not about slavery, and you you argue very clearly that these soldiers. Uh, that the data suggests otherwise when we look at these soldiers. Now, how, do, do you hear that argument regularly, and, and what data did you use to, to make your counter-argument? Um, yeah, I do hear that. Um, I, I do hear the argument that the Civil War had uh, nothing to do with uh, slavery, uh, that it was only about states' rights, and I wanted to provide... Um, you know, uh, some information about it, some statistics, some data that would show one way or the other who was right. So I began a, uh, you know, once I actually acquired a list of who these prisoners were, which was compiled by a guy by the name of James Heberlein from Wisconsin, uh, I was able to access them on Ancestry.com, and, or at least many of them, and uh, I used that as a way. I, when I saw if their personal estate, which was listed in 1860, it's not listed in all of the census records, but in 1860 it was. And if they had a, or their parents had a very high personal estate, I then surmised that maybe they owned slaves. And I would look at the slave schedule to see what their connection was, if, if any, in that regard. Uh, so... This sounds very much like the methodology that Joseph Gladhar used in his book on the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, where he you know, tried to determine how connected were these soldiers to the institution of slavery. Were they owners or were they members of a household that owned slaves and so on? Uh, well, what did your data show you? Uh, yeah, it's absolutely connected to what uh, Glathar uh, did. That's where I got this idea from. Uh, 
basically 18 uh, in the uh, first uh, Alabama, Tennessee, and Mississippi consolidated regiment, 10% either owned slaves themselves, uh, their parents did, or they worked for someone who did. Uh, in the first Alabama, it was 30%. Uh, and among the dead, the ones who are buried at the Confederate Rest, as it's called, in uh, Forest Hill Cemetery in Madison, it was 18%. Again, th- those are the three categories. And I assumed that if I couldn't find census records on them, I, I put them in the did not own slaves. So I think there's, there's really more that owned slaves than what I was able to uh, to determine, and certainly there would have been some, and I do spend some time in the book trying to show that some certainly had a high enough income that they could afford to rent a slave or two at planting and or harvest. Um, um, so I thought my conclusion was that was significant, that slavery then did uh, play a role in motivating uh, many of the soldiers, obviously not all, uh, but some, uh, in, and many again, in, in choosing to join the Confederate Army. Well, you know the the standard statistic one one often sees is that roughly a quarter of southern households, southern white households, uh, had actually owned slaves, and and Gladhar and his research shows that the number in the Army of Northern Virginia is quite a bit higher, and thirty uh, percent that you just cited here for one regiment is definitely higher than the regional average. But you were very conservative in coming to that number, as you said, and not. If the data wasn't there, then you assume they weren't, and uh, you also make the argument that that even those who don't own slaves still benefit from the social status of being in the, the so-called superior race. Right, and the thing is that for these Alabama regiments, and that's why I concentrated on because that's the ones I found the most information on, um, is that... Um, you know, the, the counties they were from were all in what became known as the Black Belt, you know, the rich agricultural area from Barber County in the eastern part of the state all the way to Choctaw and Sumter counties in the west. And Choctaw County was, you know, it, it was a growing uh, slave population from 1850 to 1860. Um, and, uh, you know, it was some of the biggest uh, the counties uh, were uh, some of the uh, had some of the highest percentages. I mean, there were ones that had um, over sixty, over seventy percent of the population uh, of the population were slaves. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, I, to me, I I would argue that that's like saying that uh, the that the automobile industry didn't have anything to do with decisions that were made in in Detroit in the 1950s and 60s. Um, you know, that was the major economic factor in many of these. Uh, yeah, Sumter County, 78% of the of, uh, of uh, the population were slaves. So clearly that, that's ingrained in the economy and the society there. Um, now, when these soldiers, when the prisoners go to Camp Randall, um, as you point out, 140 of them die, and the camp is closed within six weeks. Uh, was Camp Randall more dangerous for prisoners than, than Camp Douglas in Chicago or, or other camps? Uh, it was at first blush. Um, mm-hmm. If you go purely by uh, what I uh, refer to as the daily death rate, then 
Camp Randall's um, was higher than both Camp Douglas and Camp Butler, which were the two other facilities that uh, prisoners were sent to. Um, so, but then you have to also figure in the length of time and the um, uh, how many prisoners were actually there, and you have to factor that into it. And still, if you just do it broadly with the number of dead and the number of days, Camp, uh, excuse me, Camp Randall was still by far more deadly than the other two. But what I did was I then factored in the ones who were who came in. There were two, actually two waves of prisoners four days apart. 880 or so were brought in on April 20th by rail um, from uh, they actually had stopped at Camp Douglas for about a week, and then they were brought up to Janesville, Wisconsin, and then from Janesville to, to Madison. The other bunch, 220 or so, they were brought up the Mississippi on, um, on steamboats because they were judged, uh, to you know, uh, reports of that time indicated, because they were considered to be too sick to travel hmm. on a railroad. Uh, and in fact, 11 died, uh, you know, 11 died on board uh, this, uh, the, the boat that, that brought them up there. And more, three of them died when they were finally transferred from Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, which is where the Wisconsin River empties into the Mississippi. They were, they were then uh, brought by rail that short distance to Madison. And three of them died just on, on that day alone uh, before they even got to Madison. So... Um, yeah, it was, it was bad, but if you factor that into it, then you can actually show that the death rate for Camp Randall was actually lower than it was for Camp Douglas. So, so you have a very vulnerable population arriving at this prison. You yeah, also they, talk about the, I, uh, I, I want to ask you about the 19th Wisconsin. They, they were the guards there. They, they did not have a good relationship with the prisoners that's what, you know, that's funny that you, you bring interesting because that's what I get from a lot of people who have read my book. And I, I didn't think it, I really expressed that that much, but evidently I did it without realizing it. Um, you know, they, they didn't want to be prison guards. You know, they were young, you know, these were young men who wanted to share in the glory and, and, and get out. And, um, you know, I suppose like all prison guards at some point, you know, the, a lot of these guys are like, you know, teenagers mm -hmm. uh, and they, you know, they're not very mature. Even then, you know, they weren't going to be very mature. And they, uh, they, there was one, uh, uh, one soldier who, uh, uh, who wrote letters home and, and, you know, really talked about it, uh, you know, talked about how bad conditions were and how hard it was. And he was on the burial detail and, you know, he's bearing, you know, eight, nine, ten guys a, a day for a while. Uh, and so they I'm sure they found it to be most unpleasant duty. Uh, again, they wanted, uh, you know, they were young. They wanted uh, uh, to get out there and be part of the battle and, uh, you know, gain the valor and the honor that 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 that's, you know, that young men think about. So, uh, and as you pointed out, ironically, some of them end up becoming prisoners of war themselves when they finally get that chance. Right. Um, what, if, can visitors see the, the cemetery today? Is it still there? Oh, yes. Yes, it's there. It's, uh, it's about a mile and a half west of Camp Randall. So if anybody ever comes for a football game there, and I think East Carolina is coming to Madison in the next couple of years, by the way. Um, I, I 
they are they're going to Ann Arbor in a couple of years. I'm not sure if, if we have Madison on the schedule yet, but we will play anybody for enough money if you want to give us a good shellacking. We're, we're that's we're a good in, thing. We're deep in the red here in the athletic department. Uh, but yeah, I don't, you can go there. Uh, I don't know how many people do. Uh, I know it's part of a tour that they do every year. Uh, it's a cemetery. We actually one of Thomas Jefferson's uh, sons by Sally Hemings is buried. Hmm. He moved to Wisconsin um, at some point in his life uh, and um, and is there. But yeah, people go, you know, anytime. And I've been there 10 times. Uh, 20 times. I don't know how many times. I haven't been there in a while since COVID came in, but every time I go, there's n- never anybody else there. I particularly go to lay uh, flowers at the grave uh, of a, a young guy who died from the first uh, consolidated named James Barber, who is from Choctaw County. And uh, his this, uh, one of his relatives, a, a, a woman who lives in Oklahoma, sent me a bunch of stuff a bunch of material, I should be more specific on him. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I leave flowers there and um, just as a, a point of honor, I mean, I, I don't, uh, I'm going to be honest, I don't uh, give any credit to the cause for which they fought, whether it was secession or slavery. Again, I think it was slavery, uh, but, um, you know, they're still human beings and, um, you know, let us not forget humanity. Uh in all this, that's a, that's. I hope that's the point I make in the book. Well, uh, it, it very much is. You you talk in the last chapter about recent controversies with, uh, the, at one time, a tradition to fly uh, Confederate flags, uh, battle flags from Northern Army of Northern Virginia over these graves once a year, and how uh, that has changed. And I guess this brings us full circle what I said at the beginning of the show with the decision discussion of historical names on this campus, uh, that that you've got these extremes of people who want to continue to fly the Confederate flag. And you, you, you quote people in your book who talk the lost cause talk and insist slavery had nothing to do with it. Uh, on the other extreme, there are people, uh, I'm sure you saw the desecration of the, the uh, Colonel Hegg's statue, uh, uh, a year or so ago by people protesting against things the Confederacy stood for, but attacking the wrong guy, attacking uh, the abolitionist who gave his life at Chickamauga uh, to save the Union uh, because they were historically ignorant of who he was. So putting flowers, though, I think hopefully uh, everyone can agree that, that these were human beings and and. Uh, an apolitical gesture like recognizing their humanity seems perfectly appropriate. Um, on that note, Larry, I want to thank you for being on the show. This book is, uh, is very interesting. I, I'm sure you're aware, and most listeners are aware, that there are people who write books that they get published by small presses that are just sort of indulgences and vanity, and they maybe it's about their own family or their own relatives or something. Um, this book is not one of those. It it is an interesting analysis of Confederate soldiers, their background of the prisoner of war situation of an obscure campaign. Uh, I enjoyed reading it and listeners, I think you will too. It's called the captured, the sick and the dead Confederate soldiers at camp Randall. Uh, you can get it through Amazon or through the author or through sand beach press. Uh, Larry, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Well, it was a lot of fun. It was great to talk to you. Uh, And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.